0: about um, what is it that makes us church. And I know I grew up in a congregation where it, it looked like everybody in the church had it all together. It was good people who were cleaned up and dressed up and you never let on to having any problems. But it seems to me that song we just sang actually is the connection that we all have as a church, isn't it? We all come with a need. We need Jesus. We're all broken in some way, and we come here and we hear good news, and the good news is that this Jesus, the king, humbled himself and took our brokenness on himself and offers us forgiveness and hope. And that's what we've been trying to explore a little bit in this little series on mission. So we started a few weeks ago looking at the book of Acts and seeing what does this church, this community of Jesus followers who have been redeemed, what do they do, how do they change, how does that impact them, And now we've taken just a little detour into the book of Philippians to look at one church in particular to see what is the character with the nature of that church. So I'd like to invite you to continue on that little journey with me today by turning to the book of Philippians. So we're in the New Testament, the little letters kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians in that section there. Philippians chapter 2 today. Philippians chapter 2. And I invite you to look it up. If you've got a Bible in the chair, or if you brought a Bible with you, or look it up on your phone. Philippians chapter 2. This may be one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. I think it's just awesome. We're going to start by reading verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'm curious if you can remember the last time you had an argument the question isn't if you've ever had an argument the question is the last time you had or maybe the last time you had a heated argument can you remember it? and what the topic was? I can remember my last heated argument was with my daughter and it was about what color Skittles are the most common? (laughs) you want to take a side on this? there's Green, purple, red, yellow, and orange. Which color is most common in a bag of Skittles? No, it's not red. (laughs) Yellow. You want to argue? All it takes to have an argument is two people who think they're right, and they disagree. If I think I'm right and you think you're right, then we got grounds for a good argument. And it seems that nobody is immune from a good argument. It's something that just about everyone does from time to time. Even good, God-loving followers of Jesus argue. In fact, community of Christians, churches, are sometimes infamous for having arguments that become so heated that they actually split the congregations. One of the reasons we have so many different church buildings is because the people inside those buildings could not get along. There's a guy who's actually studied this. His name is Tom Rainey, and he did some research on actual reasons why churches split. Here's actual reasons that churches gave for splitting into an entirely new congregation. The, they had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Good argument. A debate to decide if a clock should be in the worship center or if it should be removed. Anybody want to argue about that? We have a clock here, but it's really only for me. And you all want it there, I'm telling you. (laughs) A church split in a dispute over whether or not worship leaders should wear shoes during the service. Now maybe there's something you could argue about, I don't know. They had a fight that started because at the Lord's Supper they had cran grape juice instead of plain grape juice. A church split when a board had an argument about whether or not the church should purchase a weed eater. Actually, this took two board meetings and then the church split at the end of it and there was actually no indication whether or not they actually bought the weed eater or not so I don't know what the outcome was. A church split over an argument about whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at church suppers. A church split in an argument over who had access to the copy machine and who could purchase potion stamps. Uh, I don't know exactly what the argument was here, but the church split because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from another. We're always trying to like help you all find the vacuum cleaner. Here, Go. <laughs> These are the kinds of arguments that lead to things like this. I think I have a picture of this, if I can get it up there. You go to the right, and you got new Calvary Baptist Church. You go to the left, you got old Calvary Baptist Church. This is a church that probably split over someone, you know, hiding the vacuum or something. We have churches where there's old and new, first church and second church, sometimes on the same corner. I read about a church that was called Harmony Church, and it split and the new group called themselves Greater Harmony Church. <laughs> Some congregations split, and then after they split, they tried to settle what their all their arguments in the sign, so then you get church names like this, Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church of the Absolute Predestinarian Faith and Order, which wasn't actually the longest church name I found. That goes to the church that was called... The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth without controversy, incorporated. How would you like to attend that church? It sounds like an argument waiting to happen, actually. Which made me think about truth in advertising when naming the church, and maybe the most truthful name I came across was the church called Run for Your Life Chapel. (laughs) Which is how you might feel if your church is fighting about things like the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. You might want to run for your life congregations unfortunately have problems getting along and this leads to church splits and this is not new this has actually been going on for generations most people who study the letter of philippians the letter that paul wrote to this little church in philippi think the reason he wrote it was because the church had one serious problem you know what the problem was disunity He wrote this letter to try to encourage them to get along. That's why he wrote it. It's not clear exactly what the disunity was over. It was probably not about vacuums and deviled eggs, but there was something that was causing them to have a problem, and so Paul tackles it head on. So he writes this little introductory chapter, which we looked at last week, which was kind of like, I just want to give you all, guys, a picture of the good life. He says the good life is the life that is filled with joy and gratitude and hope. That's the life that we're shooting for as disciples of Christ. And then we get into chapter 2, and he gets to what's bugging him. He starts with a plea. He says to them, you know, please think as one, love as one, be united. Don't do anything out of selfishness. Instead, of looking for yourself or, number one, look out for the interests of your neighbors. Here's actually the way he says it at the beginning of the chapter. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You see his plea there, what he's saying to them? Something has caused them not to be one. So now he's saying, be of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves. Do not look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. This is the plea that he's making to this church. Be one. One love. One spirit. One mind. This must be a kind of a common issue even in Paul's day. I I make this assumption. I'm, I'm not sure if it's completely accurate, but see if you don't agree with me. If there's a a, a nagging problem then that's something i'm probably going to keep writing about i'm going to keep addressing i'm going to keep saying it paul seems to keep bringing this up with a number of the churches he talks to them a lot about oneness about unity about getting along uh, another place where he writes about this very clearly is to the church in ephesus so this is what he says in ephesians chapter four he says i urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says if you want to live a life worthy, he's pleading with these people, well then be one. Recognize your oneness. That's the good life. If you want to live a life of joy, gratitude, and hope, you're going to do it together. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God, one baptism, one Father, one. One, one, one. This message comes out of the New Testament constantly. Just about every church that Paul writes to has some indication that this is a a core to the life that they should be living together. They should be living in one. It's not to be the church of harmony and greater harmony. It's not to be the church that's the first church and the second church. It's supposed to be one. Would you like to guess what is the most common name of a church in America? Would you like to guess the most common name? Anyone? First Baptist. There's like over 5,000 First Baptists. You want to guess what the, most, the second most common name is? No, it's not Second Baptist. <laughs> it's First United Methodist. And the third most common is First Presbyterian. And then after that, there's a whole bunch of others. Seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths. There's even tenths and elevenths. We're part of the Reformed Church, and I grew up in a community where there was a first Reformed on one corner and a second Reformed kitty-corner. They used to be one church. Now they're two. Disunity is not the way to go. Jesus wasn't for divided congregations and Paul wasn't for divided congregations. They all, they, one is better. Studies of congregations show now, I don't know who actually gets funding for these kinds of studies, but there's actually been a study done by this and the study concluded that communities in conflict don't grow. You think you need to study that to get that data? Yeah, good good one. People do not affiliate with divided, conflicted organizations. They don't. Division, conflict, fighting, factions, these are not good. And yet, I'm not sure that I in my lifetime have ever been part of a congregation that's absolutely 100% unified. Any of you? You know, if we're honest, if we've had any experience for any period of time, we know that congregations get... Sp- divisions for lots of different reasons we're not absolutely perfectly unified and so it's not really surprising when we read about these early churches in philippi and ephesus and corinthians where there was some kind of disunity going on there's always if you've got more than two people the possibility that there's going to be a conflict ray my mentor used to always say i i, um, I think we're both right but i'm not too sure about you <laughs> you've got possibility for um, conflict and that's not good. Unity's a good thing. One is good. And yet, it doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and this is where we maybe get into a little bit of confusion. The pursuit of uniformity actually can sometimes lead to oppression not unity. I have to, if I have to make everyone see it the same way I see it, if you have to make everyone agree with you about everything... That actually doesn't lead to unity, that leads to uh, oppression or squashing the voices. Is there a way to have unity and diversity at the same time? That's the question I'm wondering about. So in my first church, we had a lengthy debate about adding another worship service. Um, this was in the 80s, and so this was a really popular thing to do. When we had a very traditional worship service, and we started the discussion about whether or not we shouldn't add a second, much more contemporary service to try to reach out to people. And on the one hand, we had really good people in the congregation who said things like this. They said, adding a second service will divide our congregation. I don't like the idea of splitting us up. It's important for all of us to gather at the same time and worship at the same time and worship in the same way. And they were good, God-loving people who held that position adamantly. On the other hand, we had good people who said, well, we're already divided. We have different age groups, different tastes in music, different interests, different schedules. Having one option for worship means that we've decided to let those for whom this is an inconvenient hour, or those who don't like our style, we're just saying we don't want them here. We're saying they can be absent. Wouldn't it be better to admit that we're already divided and take steps to include those who are now being left out? And both sides really thought they were right. And so this precipitated a lot of argument. And I don't like that, because you all know I'm avoidance, uh, conflict avoidant anyway. But I didn't like the way they define the argument. They define divided as we're different. And that's actually not the way the Bible defines division. The Bible's very honest about acknowledging differences, that we have differences. The Bible talks about male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, young and old. These are differences. They do not necessarily mean that you have to be divided because, the Bible says, we're one in Christ. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God, one. Unity transcends uniformity. And this is why Paul says, you're you're Christians, you and Philippi, you're all Christians. So be united to each other in the same way that You're united to Christ. Actually, verse 5 is really key to this. This is what verse 5 says. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is the way you live amongst diversity and still remain unified. When we have the same attitude as Christ, the oneness we enjoy is called unity. And it comes even though we have differences. Paul describes in great detail the kind of attitude that's necessary for this. This is the attitude that Jesus has. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The attitude that we're invited into that brings this unity is the attitude of humility. I don't have to be right. Or if I am right, I don't have to argue about it. This isn't just any kind of humility that he's talking about. This is the kind of humility that results in exalting Jesus above all else. Recognizing that in Jesus, we are one and that holds us together above all else. That's the kind of unity that he's talking about. One thing we know for sure about Jesus is this. He brought people together. His whole ministry started by assembling a group of disciples who really didn't have a whole lot in common with each other, except that they agreed to follow Jesus. And then he formed them into this little band of followers, this little band of disciples. Jesus got into trouble constantly for calling together sinners and tax collectors, outcasts. Those who were outside of the community, he welcomed them, the marginalized. He visited with them. He let them touch him. He sat down and ate meals with them. He was forming community. Nobody else wanted these people at their table, but Jesus kept inviting them in. He gathered together a motley crew of people, and he says, You're family. You're one. You belong to each other. The world was looking at these people and he thought the world considered them strangers and enemies and sinners and outcasts and Jesus says, "No, your sisters, your brothers, your family." Jesus makes them one and then he says, "So love one another." Jesus calls constantly for unity, for reconciliation, for union, for communion, for community. These are the kinds of things that Jesus calls for. When I meet with couples who are coming to me with some kind of marriage concern and it's led them to the point where they're thinking about separating, I feel like I have to be honest with them, like truth in advertising. So I I need to say something like this. I'm a pastor, so I work for Jesus, and so that means I'm for unity. I'm for reconciliation. I'm for bringing things together. I believe that all problems are easier to solve if you agree, first of all, to say, this problem will never separate us. We can figure this out. We can stay unified even in our differences. That's the kind of unity that Paul was talking about. That's the kind of unity that Jesus was talking about. Not sameness or uniformity, but oneness, unity in Christ. And that kind of unity requires... Humility. Look one more time at the kind of humility that Jesus displayed to bring this unity. Jesus gave up his divine form, verse 6. He emptied himself of any rights, verse 7. He became human. He became a servant. He became obedient to death. He became obedient even to a terrible kind of death, a death on a cross. He humbled himself to make us one. And because of that, Jesus was exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The fruit of his humility was unity that exalts him. And he calls us to live in that same kind of unity through humility. It makes us family, brothers and sisters, so that we can have the same mind and not be divided about who gets to use the copy machine or who gets to buy postage stamps that's how it's supposed to work we are one and i find it actually fascinating that paul in nowhere in this letter actually talks directly about what divides these people he actually just keeps telling them to look at jesus and if you keep looking at jesus you're going to see what oneness is you're going to see what humility is and that's going to empower you to be able to live that way so what do you think that looks like for us i got a couple pictures in mind for this. The first one, you can look at that and think about that for a second. But I actually came up with a second picture after I put this together. I was out for a walk um, Friday morning, and as I was walking along, I noticed in the middle of the sidewalk there was a big, fat, juicy worm. And about the same time I noticed the worm, two birds came at the same time to get that worm, a great big fat robin and a little tiny sparrow. And the robin was quicker and snatched up that worm, and that made the sparrow so mad the sparrow started chirping at the robin. And the robin tried to get away and flew off a few feet and that sparrow kept chasing him. And you could see this big fat worm dangling out of this robin's mouth and the sparrow wanted it so bad he chased him all over the yard trying to get that robin. And I had this, I actually this is truthful, I had this thought in my mind. I wonder if that robin could have the instinct to be humble enough to share part of his big fat worm with that little tiny sparrow. That's what I thought. Now you're thinking I'm, all, I'm like Fritz. I've got these weird ideas. <laughs> and then it occurred to me that if the robin gave up part of that big, fat, juicy worm, the robin would have to make a sacrifice to do that. He would be giving up his breakfast. Or maybe the breakfast for some chicks he's got in some nest somewhere. I don't know. To, to, to live humbly requires Sacrifice. So watch this battle go on for quite a while. And the robin never gave up the worm because I don't know if birds have the capacity to be humble. But we do. And if we're living with humility, does that mean we actually have to give up something that would be a sacrifice for us? In the same way that Jesus made a sacrifice. And he gave up a lot in order to provide the grounds for us to have this unity. Would I give up, for the sake of unity, would I give up my need to be right? For the sake of unity, would I humble myself and wash my brother's feet? In the same way that Jesus went around that table on the last night he was with his disciples and washed the dirty feet of the one who was going to betray him and washed the dirty feet of the one Peter, who was going to deny him three times, and went around one after another and washed 12 dirty feet of all these men who were following him, but who were all about to turn their backs on him. That's humility, and that's the kind of humility that is necessary in order for there to be unity. This is what Paul is pleading With us about. So he says, Complete my joy by thinking the same way and having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the same attitude as Jesus. Lord God, we come before you today and we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this call that you give to us to live humbly and in unity with each other. We thank you for the gift, God, of your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived this way and and so made it possible for us to as well. And so we give you our thanks and we pray these things in his name. Amen.